Today, we're going to uncover the truth behind the infamous Lululemon murder case, where a discount on athletic apparel led to a brutal murder at the hands of a compulsive liar and kleptomaniac. From the initial investigation to the shocking reveal of the killer's identity, join me today as we delve into the gruesome details and uncover the events that led to a life sentence without the possibility of parole. Roll the stinger! Hello everybody with that, welcome to The Casual Criminalist. I, as always, am your host Simon. Welcome, welcome. I'm going one of my writers, Emma. Thank you, Emma has written me a script. We're gonna go through it together. We're gonna learn about this all together. I have a rather embarrassing story about Lululemon. <laughs> the first time I saw it, it wasn't like capitalized or whatever, and I'd never heard of it before. I still don't know what it looks like, to be honest. I'm not really a, a fashion person. Um, but I <laughs> I read it as Lululemon <laughs> or whatever, and people were like, Simon, <laughs> You really are out of touch. And I was like, yes, yes, I am. But enough silly stories aside, let's get into the murder. Culture is defined as the ideas, customs, and social behavior of a particular people or society. <laughs> Good to know. Thanks, Eva. And what we wear often clearly indicates what culture we associate ourselves with. <laughs> I associate myself with the blazer-wearing culture <laughs> and black turtleneck culture, me and Steve. If you're watching this episode on YouTube, sorry podcast listeners, the lovely, gorgeous and charming Jen, who's uh, the video editor, can show you an image of almost any form of traditional wear from anywhere in the world and the chances are that you'll almost instantly know what country or culture it belongs to. Oh, Emma, you, you overestimate my knowledge of world cultures. Even like my cultures that I'm familiar with. You know, I'm not talking about like North Indian uh, dress or whatever, you know, just like British, American from movies, European. I mean, like, I don't know. Is that guy French or Italian? Is that how the Italians are? I don't know. I don't know. For most people though, what we wear also indicates our level of income or adherence to current fashion trends and yoga pants have become a fashion style in the last few years. Well, okay then, Lulu Lemon, I guess, make yoga pants. Oh God. In 2018, an article published by Bloomberg described the US as the nation of yoga pants, and you only have to spend a minute on social media platforms like TikTok to see the truth of that statement. The company that is credited with introducing yoga pants to the world is a Canadian athletic apparel retailer called Lululemon. Oh, are they the originators of yoga pants? Well, there we go. According to journalist Peter Ross Range's book, Murder in the Yoga Store, Lululemon offered its employees free yoga classes on Saturday mornings and gave them free passes to fitness clubs and encouraged them to wear Lululemon clothing to work and offering them discounts on the products they sold, essentially turning their employees into walking, talking advertisements for the store. That makes perfect sense. Why wouldn't you do that? I mean, I get the feeling, though, this is one of those cases. Didn't Ab Ab Abercrombie, Abercrombie and Fitch get in trouble for this because they were like... <laughs> Guys, it seems that you only hire extremely good-looking people, and that feels like some sort of discrimination. I'm not sure how it's discrimination, because obviously if you go into a clothing store and the people there are all super handsome, it's not like you see an advert for, like, clothing and the dude's, like, you know, a bit fat and ugly. Because then I'll just be like, well, you know, even though it's not true, those clothes are going to make me look fat and ugly. I mean... <laughs> Like, you know what I mean, right? If I see a super good-looking dude in clothes, I'm going to be like, I'm going to buy those clothes because they don't look as good-looking as that guy. It's obviously also not true, but it's that association we have in our mind. So is it unreasonable for clothing stores to be like, well, we only want people to sell the clothes who look good in the clothes? Is that, is that discrimination? I don't know. 
it's, it, it, it would be a bit, I find it, like, we don't discriminate on models. <laughs> it's like, do you want to be, I, like, I couldn't be a model. I'm not good looking enough. I'm fine with that. That's okay. <laughs> I have no expectation of that. According to an interview with a Lulu girl, Michelle Malia did for her article what it's really like to work at Lululemon. <laughs> oh my god, that must be a page turner. Or a scroller or a clicker or whatever we call it these days. Lululemon hires people who all have that athlete mentality, who are into working out, fitness, eating healthy. It's a lifestyle, so they usually hire people who have a lot in common. 30-year-old Jaina Troxel-Murray and 28-year-old Brittany Norwood were both a part of Lululemon's sisterhood of Lulu girls. Guys, it's sounding a little culty, allegedly. They worked at the Bethesda branch in a tree-lined shopping district along Bethesda Avenue that is known as Bethesda Row. Bethesda, Bethesda, Bethesda. Because the store in an all-female staff company policy was that at least three people had to work the closing shift, but on the 11th of March 2011, they were short-staffed, so Jaina and Brittany were working the closing shift from 3pm to 9pm on their own. The store wasn't particularly busy that evening, but the Apple store next door had been buzzing all day since Apple had just launched the iPad 2. <laughs> Which feels so dated now. I mean, this one's like a few years old. It's beginning to feel dated. The iPad 2. They were around for a long time, I think. Apple even sold them for a long time. You could see the pixels. <laughs> Are we savages? Who wants to see pixels? By 9pm, the crowds that had queued down the block that afternoon had dissipated and Bethesda Row was mostly deserted by the time the two girls closed shop. As part of the leadership team, Jaina was responsible for cashing up, while Brittany, one of the newest hires, ensured that the displays were neat and in order. Then they met up in one of the back rooms where the store employees stored their belongings, and as part of the store's closing procedures, the two girls checked each other's bags. Okay, <laughs> yeah, what if they're like, shall we just steal together? <laughs> Which doesn't seem impossible. Since Lululemon employees are encouraged to purchase clothing at the store, it isn't unusual for them to have Lululemon merchandise in their bags. Usually the price tags would have been cut off, and the girls just have to present their slips as proof that they'd purchased the clothing that day. But that evening, Brittany didn't have a slip to prove that she'd bought the pair of yoga pants that Jaina came across in her bag. I mean, that sounds like a mistake, because if you know at the end of the day someone's going to search your bag for stolen sh**, you don't steal and put it in the bag, do you? You like stuff it down your pants or whatever, like a good criminal. That sounds like she just must have made a mistake. Either that or... No, it just seems like a mistake. You'd have to be really dim not to, to, to steal when you know you're going to be checked, right? <laughs> about the list of rules for criminals. Jaina wasn't surprised, though. The leadership team at the Bethesda store suspect that Brittany had been stealing from the store and her fellow employees ever since she started working there six weeks earlier, and now Jaina could prove it. Oh, okay. Well, how did she get away from stealing so long when she's so, you know, not so bright at stealing? When Jaina asked Brittany when she'd bought the pair of yoga pants, Brittany claimed that Coima, one of the day shift employees, had processed the sale. The system was down for the night, so Jaina couldn't double check the sales for the day. So instead, Jaina confiscated the pants and told Brittany that she was going to have to follow up on the purchase the next day. Brittany agreed, insisting that she'd done nothing wrong, and the two girls left the store. Uh oh, Brittany. Uh oh, Brittany, it's time for you to flee the country. <laughs> Brittany head toward, headed towards the nearest train station, and Jaina got into her car and started following up on Brittany's claims that she'd purchased the pair of yoga pants. Jaina called Kioma first and asked her whether she'd sold anything to Brittany that day. Kioma denied it, so Jaina then called Rachel or Ortley, the store manager, and told her that she'd suspected that Brittany had attempted to steal from the store. 
Rachel told Jaina that she would deal with it the next day, and Jaina switched on her car and started heading home. Then her phone started ringing. It was Brittany, and she claimed to have forgotten her wallet back at the store. Since her MetroCard was in her wallet, she was stranded, and Jaina needed to head back to the store to let Brittany in so that she could retrieve her wallet. Jaina parked her car in front of the store, and the two girls met up at the store's entrance. Jaina unlocked the door, disabled the alarm, and led the way inside, not bothering to lock the door behind them. She escorted Brittany to the back of the store to keep an eye on her, and Brittany brought up the subject of the yoga pants again. Jaina refused to talk about it, telling Brittany that Rachel was going to deal with it the next day. The two girls argued with a desperate Brittany, trying to convince Jaina not to tell the others what she'd done. Uh-oh, she already told them. <laughs> An impatient Jaina ended up giving Brittany her Metro card instead, wanting to bring an end to the argument so that she could just go home. Then Jaina turned around and led the way to the sales floor. She never saw the first blow coming. Oh my god, is she getting murdered over this? <laughs> what the f***, you psycho? <laughs> the Nightmare on Bethesda Row Fair warning, things are about to get ugly. The details surrounding the attack on Brittany and Jaina- Oh, never mind. Okay. I just assumed that- <laughs> It's a bit savage, isn't it? That she killed her over the yoga pads. Okay, so something more is happening. That would uh, that would make sense. The details surrounding the attack on Brittany and Jaina are crucial to this case, so bear with me. Rachel realized that something was wrong when she arrived at the store at 8 a.m. the next morning. The store was unlocked, and when Rachel stepped inside, she noticed that mannequins had been knocked over, clothes were strewn over wooden floors, a flat-screen TV that they used for marketing purposes had crashed to the ground, and the floor was covered in bloody footprints. And then she heard someone moaning in pain at the back of the store. In a panic, Rachel called 911, and soon police officers from the Montgomery County Police arrived on the scene. Jaina's body was discovered in the rear hallway that was used as a storage area. She was lying face down, her body facing the rear exit door, and she was covered in blood. The toolbox had fallen off the storage shelves and onto her body at one point during the attack, and its bloody contents were scattered all around her. The crotch of her yoga pants had been cut open, exposing her, and based on the piece of clothing around her neck, she had been strangled. The police found an unconscious Brittany lying in a pool of blood in the staff bathroom. Her hands and ankles had been tied with zip ties. The crotch of her black yoga pants had also been cut open, and she lay stretched out on her back with her arms above her head. The paramedics weren't sure just how severely she had been injured, so Brittany was rushed to a nearby hospital. There, the hospital staff reported that Brittany had a deep cut on her forehead, various parallel cuts on her stomach, back, arms and legs, fine cuts all over her body, a cut between one, her one thumb and forefinger, and she also was tested for possible sexual assaults. Veteran detective Dina Mackey went to interview Brittany at the hospital. She specialized in homicide and sex crimes, and even she was shocked at the sadistic nature of the attack on the two girls. According to Brittany, she had followed Jaina out of the back room the previous night, and they had made it to the middle of the sales floor when two men dressed in black attacked them. One of them hit Jaina on the back of the head while the other attacked Brittany. To quote, he had me by the hair, told me if I said another word, he would slit my throat. The men dragged Brittany by her hair to the staff bathroom, then proceeded to cut her all over her body, insulting her with every cut, calling her a dirty b a dirty h and a dirty n-word. The quote continues, I was still trying to fight him and tried to get up, and he hit me across the head. I just fell back and hit my head on the ground, and he pushed me back. He had a knife of some kind. He told me if I didn't shut up and stop moving, he'd make sure I'd never have kids, and it was cutting down my stomach. He said something along the lines of being with a dirty N-word. I've never been with one of these. And he was cutting my pants, and he was going to rape me. Jesus Christ, you did say it was going to get dark, but bloody hell. 
The man then cut the crotch of Brittany's leggings open and proceeded to rape Brittany, but the initial assault didn't last long. Instead, he took out one of the wooden clothes hangers that they used in the store and used it to continue to assault her while Jaina's scream sounded from further down the hallway. All the while, Brittany could hear people talking and cheering in the adjacent Apple store, but none of them could come to her aid. Quoting again, Jaina kept yelling and fighting, and he just kept hitting her. I think he dragged her to the other bathroom, and she was still trying to fight with him, but then I heard something break. He was just repeatedly hitting her, and he was screaming and yelling, and I couldn't do anything. I don't know if she was able to stand up. I don't know if she was on her knees or what. He was dragging her by the hair. Brittany was taken to the front of the store, where her attacker demanded that she should open the cash registers and the safe for him. That was when she saw the first attacker drag Jaina back into the hallway, where he continued to assault her. Jaina's screams echoed down the hallway until they grew weaker and eventually just faded into nothing. At one point, Brittany tried to go and help Jaina. She made it to the rear hallway and noticed all the blood, but her attacker caught up with her and dragged her back to the bathroom by her hair before tying her hands and feet together with cable ties and leaving her crying and alone in the bathroom. Eventually, she blacked out, only coming to when the police arrived on the scene. Quoting again, There was so much blood. I remember trying to help her. I tried to help Jaina. She was bleeding so much. But despite the blood, despite Jaina's fading cries, Brittany didn't seem to realize that Jaina hadn't survived the attack. She reportedly kept asking Detective Mackey, Can you tell me how my friend is doing? But Detective Mackey didn't have the heart to tell the sobbing girl that Jaina was dead, and she dodged the question by saying that she hadn't yet been to see Jaina. When asked to describe her attackers, Brittany said that one of them was quite tall, easily over six feet, while the other one was barely taller than her. They were of medium build and wore black clothes. Her attacker had been behind her most of the time, and they both had masks covering their faces, so she couldn't describe what they looked like, but based on the voices, she guessed that they were both white. The news of their attack spread quickly, with Washington Post reporting that both victims had been sexually assaulted and one of them had been killed. Police spokesman Captain Paul Stark said that, quote, we do believe robbery was part of the motive here, but we haven't been able to clarify what was taken. We can't rule out that the crime was random, but the suspects were clearly prepared to do something. They had gloves and masks with them. Whether they had planned to rob the store or planned to commit some other type of crime, we do not know. I mean, there's got to be, like, cameras and stuff and evidence they're left behind. I think they're like masks and gloves, but this is a violent crime. There's going to be, like, trace evidence and stuff, and... This is in a city, right? So even if they're wearing masks, and this is relatively, was it 2011? So yeah, I mean, there was lots of CCTV around in 2011. It's only 10 years, 12 years ago. So surely they could trace them to wherever they put the masks on, like down the street. There's going to be a lot of clues to go on here, guys. For many, this was a nightmare come to life, and the businesses surrounding the Lululemon store implemented many measures to protect their staff, going so far as to shorten their business hours and hire additional security until such a time as the two men who'd attacked Brittany and Jaina were caught. The local real estate agency offered a $10,000 reward for any information that could lead to an arrest, resulting in locals calling clothing stores in the area to ask whether they'd sold face masks to anyone in the days leading up to the attack. Soon, a real-life version of Chinese Whispers turned two men wearing black masks into two black men wearing masks, and every black man who walked down Bethesda Avenue became a suspect to the people working there. Ah, good old racism. Of course. The footprints never left the store. Detectives Jim Drury and Dimitri Rubin were assigned 
to the case. And when they walked into the Bethesda branch of Lululemon that Saturday morning, the store's glass windows had already been covered by brown paper and yellow police tape, keeping the gawkers at bay, and Bethesda Avenue was still crawling with journalists. But the inside of the store looked like something out of a horror film. Assistant State Attorney Mary Beth Aries would later say, they had this weird, dim overhead lighting. The store was quiet. There were mannequins and racks of clothes, and it was almost like in a movie, like someone could jump out from anywhere. It was really creepy. Oh, is this one of those stores? These are not. It's like Abercrombie. I've never been to a Lululemon, but I have been to an Abercrombie and Fitch. And it's like, it smells too much. It's too dark. <laughs> Why does it have to be like this? I need to be able to see the clothes. Come on. <laughs> I don't want it to be like a nightclub. For the two detectives, however, it looked like an episode of CSI Come to Life. Quote, everything was there, right where Brittany had said it was. The floor was covered in bloody footprints of varying sizes, receipts were strewn all over, the cash register had been left open, and the safe had been emptied. In the bathroom where they'd found Brittany, they found the box cutters that had been used to cut her, the wooden hanger that she'd been assaulted with, and the bloodied shards of a vase that she'd been lying on for hours before the police found her. In the rear hallway, they found clumps of Jaina's hair on the floor. The whole area was covered in blood, the floor, the walls, and the ceiling. The police found the box of zip ties that had been used to tie Brittany up on the storage shelves and collected all the tools that had fallen out of the toolbox. The majority of them were covered in blood, and bloody piping was also recovered and added to the mounting pile of evidence that needed to be sought through. Jesus Christ, guys, overkill much? What they didn't have was video surveillance. Lululemon didn't have security cameras installed. Guys, it's 2011, get your together, why wouldn't you have security cameras? You're a store that sells presumably expensive Neither did the majority of the businesses in the surrounding area, but the Apple Store did, both inside and outside the store. And as their luck would have it, the Apple Store surveillance cameras had captured footage of two men wearing black, casually walking away from Lululemon shortly after the murder took place. Now the police just had to identify them. Why don't I guess I, I guess surveillance just wasn't as common even 12 years ago? Um, why don't you have the video of them going in or something like that? You just have them coming out of the store. But wait, there's more. Two of the Apple Store's employees who'd been working the previous night reported that they might have heard something around the time of the attack. The Apple Store shared a wall with Lululemon, and just after 10pm, one of the managers was busy cashing up at the back of the store and heard strange sounds coming from the other side of the wall. Quote, It sounded like something heavy was being hit or dragged, some grunting, some thudding, some kind of high-pitched squealing, yelping, a female voice, like hysterical sounds. <laughs> You didn't do anything, bro? <laughs> what? Okay, the manager called the senior manager over, and together the two of them listened to the sounds coming through the wall. They could make out two female voices. One of them said, Talk to me. Tell me what's going on. Why won't you tell me? Talk to me. Followed by grunting and screaming, and someone crying, Stop. Oh God, please help me. The surveillance video from inside the store would show that the two of them had stood and listened for nine minutes as the sounds died away, unsure of what to do or how to react, reportedly thinking it was just some drama. Um, I don't know what it sounded like. There is no recording of that, so we can't know how intense it was. But it sounds pretty intense. <laughs> sounds like the sort of thing you might be listening to a murder. <laughs> Maybe you want to call the police just in case the police aren't going to mind. They're going to be like, you made the right call. Even if it was nothing. Even if someone just had the TV turned up too loud or whatever. Just, they're not going to be upset that you called them. They don't mind. It's their job. They thought that they shouldn't interfere, but someone else reported that they'd seen someone suspicious outside of Lululemon the night of the attack. A local homeless man had been hanging around outside Lululemon for most of the afternoon, and at one point, 
it was seen talking to two men dressed in black. Hoping that they'd finally track down their suspects, the police went looking for the homeless man and found him that Sunday night in the same hospital where Brittany was being treated. The clothes they arrived in were covered in blood and the police confiscated them to have them tested. The blood turned out to be his own since he'd been involved in a fight in a club on Saturday night. The police did manage to track down the two men in the surveillance footage, though, and they turned out to be two busboys who worked at a local restaurant. They'd been heading home after their shift, and it didn't take the police long to realize they had nothing to do with the murder. So, once again, the police were without a suspect, but the forensics reports were starting to come in, and they were poking holes in Britney's story. There's more to this again. Wait, did Britney actually do this? Because at the beginning, I was like, nah, she, they're, 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 it wouldn't be her. It was just over the pants. But is that what is that where this is going to go? <laughs> is this story ringing bells in my mind now that maybe that is the case, that she actually did murder a colleague? First, there was the autopsy report. Jaina had sustained hundreds of injuries, 232 blunt force in, but she was tied up and stuff. She was zip-tied to a wall. How do you zip-tie yourself to a wall or a rack or whatever it was? 232 blunt force injuries and 99 sharp force injuries. That's mental. She had over 100 wounds to her head and face. She had also been strangled, and her legs was bru- were bruised, as if she'd been kicked. The majority of her wounds were defensive, showing that she'd fought for her life. The killing blow was a stab wound at the back of her head, uh, where she'd been hit with a metal peg. In total, there were 331 identifiable wounds on her body, and she'd been alive when every single one of them was made. When compared to the few scratches that Brittany had on her body, it seemed like overkill. What also bothered the police was the fact that the weapons that have been used on the girls came from the store. Surely if you were planning on robbing someone, you'd bring your own weapons. Then there were the rape kits. The cards to Jane and Britney's yoga pants indicated that they might have been sexually assaulted, but neither of them were. Britney had claimed she'd been assaulted with a wooden clothes hanger, but the nurse who examined her noted that her genitals weren't tender or swollen or damaged in any way. Britney's clothes were also covered in blood, and when the results came back, it turned out that the blood belonged to both Jane and Britney. Britney, 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 did you murder your boss? Holy sh! And then there were the sneakers. You see, Lululemon didn't sell sneakers, but the store had a pair of men's size 14 sneakers that their clients wore whenever alterations to their clothes had to be made. The police found the sneakers stashed away on a shelf in the store, and they matched on the sets of bloody footprints found perfectly. Their soles were clean, but the sneakers had drops of blood on their tops, blood stains on the inside, and their laces were missing. Um. You've tried to cover up a crime scene really badly. Everyone knows you burn the evidence. You don't wash it and hide it in a cupboard, hoping that the police won't search there. <laughs> what are you stupid? Furthermore, David McGill, one of the forensic specialists, had expected that they would there would be four sets of bloody footprints. After all, there were four people in the store during the attack, and yet he only found two: the size 14 and a woman's size seven and a half. He made note of other strange details as well. Whenever the shoe prints overlapped, the larger footprints were on top of the smaller ones. The footprints also circled all around the store in an odd kind of chicken dance, but they all led back to a sink in the back room before coming to a stop in front of a chair. This is like... So it feels like someone has tried to stage this crime scene, (coughs) Brittany, and it looks good, but then as soon as an actual forensics expert looks at it, They'll just be like, well, no, that shouldn't be like that. That shouldn't be like that. That shouldn't be like that. And boom, you're done for. You're cooked. 
The only prints that moved all around the store were odd wiggly lines or slap-slap marks that were made whenever a pair of bloody laces hit the ground as the person was walking. Not one set of footprints left the store at any point during the attack. And then they found Jaina's car. According to Brittany's testimony, Jaina had parked her car in front of the store when she returned it to Lululemon that night, and yet her car wasn't there when the police arrived the next morning. A patrol car found Jaina's two-door Pontiac G5 three blocks away in a parking lot next to a farmer's market, but According to Jaina's friends, she never parked her car there. Forensics found blood on the car's stick shift, the driver's side door, and the steering wheel. They also found, oh my god, you've done the worst crime scene ever. <laughs> really? Really? You did think about this one? They found a black Lululemon cap in the back of the car that had traces of blood on the headband. Forensics dropped DNA profiles for all of the bloodstains, and they matched one person. Three guesses who? Oh, I only need one guess. Thanks to forensics reports, Brittany Norwood had gone from fellow victim to murder suspect within the course of two days. Mega, mega murder suspect. Red-handed. Holy sh**. Detective Rubin later explained that it bothered us from the beginning that the footprints never left the store, but now in the context of Brittany being involved, it made sense. The footprints never left the store because the killer never left the store. Brittany killed Jaina. I'm sure you figured out, or at least suspected, that she'd done it way back at the beginning of the script. Well, yeah, but then you led me down another path, which seemed totally legit at the beginning, and then it quickly fell apart. I mean, the, the masked men and stuff is just like... I had, like, an inkling, but I... It's also one of those things where it's like, what if she is actually a victim? And then you're, like, saying that she murdered her friends, and it turns out that they were actually just murdered... That's not a good thing to do. So while I did have a tiny inkling, and I won't say I'm big-brained enough to have figured it out, I was like, mm, mm, maybe? <laughs> and yet the police didn't want to believe it at first. There are two passages from the book Murder in the Yoga Store that sum up the disbelief that the police felt when they were faced with the reality that Brittany had killed Jaina. To quote, Many people thought that the cops and investigators must have seen through her fabrication all along. Hindsight got a good ride with folks who were not working the case, who didn't walk into the crime scene and find all the pieces exactly as Brittany described them from a hospital bed. They had not seen the Apple Store video of the two men uh, walking from the direction of Lululemon. Yeah, I mean, hindsight's twenty twenty. Give these guys a break. You don't think that a woman is going to expose her vagina, cut her breasts and her legs. It's just so pathological, the level of deception, that a cover-up is not what people are going to immediately think. No, of course not. This is totally reasonable. And then forensics comes back and you're like, you'd just be like, holy shit, okay, just like I was. That's the natural reaction. Stop thinking if from the future that you know everything, that you would have known everything in the present that you know in the future about the past. It's just not clever. Quote continues, As human beings, we want to believe it's the masked men. You don't want to believe it's the articulate, educated, attractive girl next door. Quote ends, Nothing about Brittany seemed to suggest that she'd be capable of murdering anyone in such a brutal way. She was from a large, close-knit family. When she still lived at home, she'd attended church every Sunday. She'd done well in school and was a phenomenal soccer player, earning herself a scholarship at Stony Brook University in Long Island. But Brittany had a few quirks. She was a neat freak who always wanted to look her best. She had expensive tastes and liked eating at pricey restaurants. She was also a compulsive liar and a kleptomaniac. <laughs> not a good thing if you work in a store. According to the Washington Post, her old teammate at SBU said that Brittany was as nice as they come, really friendly, a leader on the team. But Megan Healy, one of her old teammates, also told reporters that other girls on the team told me things like, watch your locker, keep it locked. She's been known to steal things. 
And Liani asked an old friend of Britney's, said, She was my best friend in college. We had a falling out because the girl was like a klepto. Whenever she was caught, however, Britney would go on the defensive and claim to be a victim that her teammates were picking on her because of her race. Her behavior cost her a scholarship before she could finish her degree, and Britney would go on to take jobs that paid minimum wage. She'd also had a restraining order issued against her in 2008 after she'd reportedly started stalking an ex-boyfriend of hers. He claimed that she had been abusive during their relationship and would often punch and push him during arguments. Once he started seeing someone else, though, Britney broke into their apartment and stole his new girlfriend's belongings, and in May 2008, an arrest warrant was issued for her after she'd broken the terms of her restraining order, but it was never, never carried out. Of course, the leadership team at Lulu Mellon in Georgetown didn't know any of this when Britney applied for a position as salesperson. Does a restraining order go on your criminal... Well, there was a, a, a warrant for arrest. That's going to go on your criminal record. <laughs> they were, is it, right? It's not... Wait, but she was never arrested. Why not? It was never carried out. <laughs> They're just like, nah. But is it getting arrested or is it a warrant for your arrest that goes on your criminal record? I imagine it's both, right? They're not running a criminal record check when you, they, they hire someone? Actually, maybe they don't. I've worked in stores. No one ever gave me, no one ever asked for a criminal record background check. No, that's never happened. I don't think I've ever actually done one of those. But after a few weeks, her true colors started showing, and the leadership team at Lululemon in Georgetown started to suspect that she'd been stealing from the cash registers. Eventually, she'd be fired after she'd taken advantage of a special staff shopping night. All of Lululemon's employees were given $1,000 each just before Christmas and told to shop to their heart's content. And Shop Britney did rack it up a bill of almost $2,000. They gave you a grand to spend in the store, and you're like, it's not enough. It's not enough. A grand? I don't know how expensive Lululemon is. How expensive is Lululemon? Lululemon. Is it even... Oh, you can buy it here. Okay, it's like... A women's jacket is, what, 40? Okay, it's not that expensive. Unless, I don't know if... Oh, these are like the Google ads, so this might not actually be real. And it's also in Czech. Where's... Oh, okay, here's the official EU store. I can't believe I'm actually looking. I'm just curious. I'm curious how much $1,000 gets you at Lululemon. Wow, there's a lot of very tight clothes on this website. Oh, okay, yeah. So it's like a hundred bucks for a pair of trousers. So it ain't like for uh, yoga pants or whatever. So it certainly isn't cheap. These are not—it's not very attractive clothing. Is this in fashion? Do people wear? I mean, I know yoga pants are a thing, but I thought it was just these kind of look weird. Anyway, a thousand dollars feels quite generous. Then you could at least get like seven, eight pairs of clothing, right? After Britney was asked to leave the store, she vented to her friend Isla, telling her that, quote, she felt she was wrongfully fired. She thought she had the manager's permission to go over the limits. Britney appealed the decision to fire her and won. But of course, her relationship with the Georgetown store was broken, so she transferred to the Lululemon in Bethesda instead. Oh, wait, is that where the murder happened in Bethesda? I think it was, because there was all those Bethesdas in the beginning. But the police didn't know any of this when they went to interview her uh, the Monday after the attack. They found that Britney's family had flown down from Seattle to support her, and she was still visibly shaken from her ordeal. She also remembered a few details she hadn't told the police during her initial interview. In stops and starts, crying the entire time, Britney told the detectives that her attackers had laughed a lot during the attack, as if it was a game to them. When she tried to escape through the back door, one of the men had jerked her back and she'd fallen onto Jaina's body, explaining why her clothes had been covered in both her and Jaina's blood. Worse still, her attackers had gone through her wallet and warned her that they were now that they now knew where she lived. As a result, she was living in terror at the idea of them returning for her, and initially the detectives fell for her story. Quote, she was crying, she was shaking, it was hard listening to her. I'm thinking, 
I can't believe what she went through. God damn, she's putting on a good show. But as they drove back to police headquarters that night, Detective Rubin mentally picked through everything Brittany had told him so far and realized that Brittany's story didn't make sense. Her attackers sounded like the incarnation of pure evil. To quote again, if you're going to make up somebody evil, what are they going to do? They're going to rape, they're going to rob, they're going to kill, they're going to be a racist. It's like you're creating the most evil person in the world. Detective Rubin was quickly coming to the conclusion that Brittany might be the killer. And he ran his theory past Detective Drury. <laughs> At which point Drury was like, Dude, me too, I just didn't want to say! <laughs> no, to which he really replied, Her story seems so exaggerated. Two really evil guys just doesn't make sense. But does one evil woman make sense? I'm beginning to think uh, there weren't any masked men. I'm beginning to think Brittany killed Jaina. Now that Brittany had stepped into the role of the killer, a lot of evidence started to make sense, like how all the weapons came from inside the store, like how the killer knew where to find the zip ties, something the police had to search for, the footprints that never left the store, the sneakers that had supposedly been left behind by the killers, the way Brittany's, Brittany's body was posed when they found her, and the fact that nothing had kept her from getting up and calling for help the moment their attackers had left the store. Well, a couple of things there. One. Didn't she say she blacked out, which I feel like, if her story was true, would be fair. Also, didn't they say she was tied up by zip ties? But I'm so convinced that she did it now that I'm like, she must have found a way to tie herself up. And then there were the cuts that had been made all over her body. Yeah, I'm like, they were shallow, though. They were like these weak-ass cuts compared to, like, the brutal attack on Jaina. Um, and I think she just did that because she, you know, she didn't want to hurt herself too bad, just enough to make it look like she was attacked as well. There's too much of a discrepancy. If you know what to look for, it was obvious they were self-inflicted. They were all skin-deep, parallel cuts, even the ones on her back. Furthermore, the cuts on her back were hidden by her clothes at first. If they'd been caused in her struggle, her clothes would have been ripped in places as well, and they weren't. And last but not least, the bloodstains on the insides of her seven and a half sneakers matched those on her bloodied socks and the stains inside the size 14 sneakers. Oh my god, you are just littering this place with evidence. What are you up to? Now the police were gathering everything they needed to build a solid case against Brittany Norwood, and just three days later she'd become a suspect in a murder investigation. Brittany called the police headquarters to tell them that she'd remembered something else that they should know. Detective Drury and Detective Rubin were, to use one of my favorite idioms, as pleased as punch. They hadn't had a valid excuse to call Brittany in for another interview, and here she'd just given them a reason to talk to her. Brittany spent the first part of the interview spinning more lies, reminding them over and over that she was a victim, trying to explain away the traces of her blood that they'd found in Jaina's car by saying that she'd been forced to move it. But eventually, Detective Drury crossed his arms, sat back in his chair, and said, You should have got a lawyer! <laughs> No, not really, but she should have, and he said, Brittany, there comes a point sometimes when we have to break down and get everything off our chests. I'm sure you've been going completely nuts these past couple of days with worry or with fear about what the cops have figured out. You've got to tell us what really happened, because I know what really happened. Um, no, you don't. <laughs> Just pro tip there. That is a police tactic. You've got to tell us what happened, because we know what happened. Um... Your lawyer will just shut up. Don't say anything. Detective Drury and Reuven confronted Brittany with every fact of the case, with every theory they had regarding why she'd killed Jaina, trying their best to get her to admit that she'd murdered her, but Brittany denied everything. Uh, smart. Uh, when he realized that they weren't going to break her, Detective Drury read Brittany Norwood, her Miranda rights, and arrested her on the spot for suspicion of first degree murder. The evidence tells a story. Brittany might have had her own twisted version of what happened that Friday night, but the forensics evidence would give Jaina a voice of her own and it painted a dark picture. The fight broke out 
in the back room. As soon as Jaina turned her back, Brittany bent and picked up a heavy metal merchandise peg. She walked up behind Jaina as she made her way towards the front of the store and hit her over the head with it. Jaina, shocked and dazed, dropped her bag, turned around to see where the blur had come from, and confronted Brittany, asking her what the hell she was doing. After all, this wasn't some random attacker. Some monster had sneaked into the store unseen. It was someone she knew. Someone she'd worked with all day. Someone who'd just attacked her out of the blue. Surely they could talk it out, resolve whatever issue Brittany had with her. We don't know what Brittany responded with, but Jaina was freaked out enough that she'd make a run for it. Jaina managed to reach the sales floor before Brittany caught up with her, grabbed onto her jacket, and pulled her off balance. A fight ensued, and the television was knocked from the wall and crashed onto the floor. Somewhere along the way, Jaina left a bloody handprint on the wall and managed to get out of her jacket, loosening Brittany's hold on her and leaving it on the sales floor for the police to find. Jaina made another dash for the door, knocking over a mannequin, but Brittany grabs a hold of Jaina's hair, pulling chunks of it out as the two girls continued to struggle. Jaina would eventually run to the back of the store to try and escape through a rear exit instead, but it was locked. She tried to call 911 for help, but Brittany knocked her phone out of her hand, and its pieces would be found next to her body. Now Jaina was cornered, and Brittany descended on her in a mindless fury. For 20 minutes, Jaina tried to defend herself, tried to fight back, but she was without a weapon and already at a disadvantage. She would end up on her knees, then her side, crying and screaming for help as the blows descended on her, until eventually one of the sharp edges of the metal peg hit her on the back of the head, severing her spine and killing her instantly. At the end of it all, Brittany stood over Jaina and probably realized what she'd done. For a moment, she must have considered running away and claiming ignorance, but she had called one of their co-workers to ask for Jaina's number when she realized that she'd forgotten her wallet at the back of the store. They knew that she had headed back to the store with Jaina, so she couldn't go home and pretend like nothing had happened. She had to cover her tracks. In an adrenaline-fueled panic, she realized that Jaina's car was still parked illegally in front of the store. Thinking that it would draw attention, Brittany donned a black Lululemon cap so that no one would recognize her and parked Jaina's car three blocks away, not realizing that she was not only covered in Jaina's blood, but that she had sustained a cut on her hand that was also bleeding, leaving her DNA all over the inside of Jaina's car. I can imagine her screaming and crying as she, as she realized that she'd just murdered someone and that her life was over, and she tossed the black cap into the back of the car in a panic. She would end up sitting in the car for more than two hours as she calmed down and contemplated her options. We know this because at 12.30 a.m., two hours since Jaina had died, a passing police officer noticed that a car was parked in the otherwise empty parking lot with his headlights still on. Realizing that someone was inside, he made a note of it and then he continued on his way. Eventually, Brittany would walk those three blocks back to the store, then stage it to look like a robbery had taken place. She noticed that she had tracked bloody footprints throughout the store, so she pulled on a pair of men's sneakers and added some more so that it looked like a man had been there as well. This stained the inside of the sneakers with the blood-soaked socks. She then washed the soles of the sneakers and placed them back on the shelf. Now she had to make herself look like a victim. She collected the zip ties from the storage shelf above Jaina's lifeless body and picked up a box cutter that had fallen out of the toolbox during their struggle. She staged the scene of her own attack in one of the bathrooms and used the box cutter to make shallow cuts all over her body. She then sat down on the floor, zip-tied her ankles together, and did the same to her hands, leaving her teeth mark on the zip ties. Oh, for some reason I had her pictured like her hands like behind her back or something. Which I guess you could still zip tie together, but it's going to be tricky. She must have gone over her version of events multiple times as she lay there for hours, her arms stretched out above her head, waiting for someone to discover her. And the moment Rachel entered the store, it was Brittany's time to shine. One hell of a liar.
On the 18th of March, 2011, at 1.54 p.m., Brittany Norwood was arrested for the savage murder of Jane and Murray. Her arrest was a shock to everyone who'd been following the news regarding the Lululemon murder, but ironically, it was also a relief to those who'd been convinced that two monsters intruded on their peaceful community, when in fact the reality was more sinister. Brittany would be held in the Montgomery County lockup for the next seven months. The state prosecutors wanted the toughest possible sentence life in prison without parole. Maryland doesn't have the death penalty, and they had their work cut out for them. According to Peter Range, the state prosecutors didn't feel that they could prove without any doubt that Brittany had been the one to kill Jaina. The forensic evidence was only circumstantial, not concrete proof. Brittany's lawyer argued that Brittany had snapped and wanted to negotiate for either a plea deal and to stay in a state mental institution or second-degree murder. But the Morris second-degree murder… <laughs> this is like a person you just murdered your friends! Because she caught you stealing pants. This is murder, murder. But the Murrays wanted Brittany to face the music, and they wanted to know exactly what had happened that Friday night. Jaina's brother, Dirk, would say that the trial was my last opportunity to hear my sister speak. To say that Brittany Norwood's trial was hard on the Murray family would be an understatement, but it was just as hard on the Norwoods, who had to listen as their sister and daughter was described as a monster, a torturer, a mutilator. Both families would spend six days going through every detail of what happened that night and listen to the 25 witnesses that were called to testify. They had to look over 200 photos, some of which were the wounds that Jaina had suffered during the attack. State attorney John McCarthy would point to every one of the eight weapons that had been used during the attack, and he told the jury, Think about how long this took. Jaina is alive through almost all of this. The last wounds are from the knives. This was not slow. This was not painless. Wait, did he mean this is this was not fast? Because it seems like it was slow. At the end of those six days, the jury found Brittany Norwood guilty of premeditated first-degree murder, and three months later, Judge Robert Greenberg listened as Brittany apologized to the Murrays for murdering Jaina and asked him to have mercy on her and grant her the possibility of parole, even if it was only for her family's sake. Judge Greenberg felt no sympathy. He described her actions as the worst of human behavior, telling the court that this woman was a phenomenal actress. She whimpers and cries on cue. Then addressing Brittany, he said, You're a hell of a liar, Mom. Our entire community was terrorized. He told her that she had plenty of opportunities to stop the attack, but she didn't, instead continuing to brutally attack a woman who didn't deserve any of it. After every blow, you had a chance to think about what you were doing. Instead, you mutilated this woman. I have no doubt, Ms. Norwood, that you are a deeply troubled woman. However, my sympathy for your plight, Mom, does not begin to approach what I feel for the Murray family. You will live. You will see another sunrise, another sunset. It may be through a prison window. There'll be Christmases, there'll be telephone calls, there'll be visits. The only visits Jane and Murray will have are those to her grave. The 28-year-old Brittany Norwood received a life sentence without the possibility of parole. And just like that, one of the most bizarre murder cases that has ever been heard in Montgomery County was over. In loving memory of Jane Troxel Murray. As with every case we cover here, it's important to remember that Jaina wasn't just a murder victim, but she was a daughter, a sister, a friend. So today, I'd like to end this episode by honoring her. Jaina was born on the 22nd of November 1980, the youngest of three kids. By all accounts, she was outgoing, adventurous, loud, bubbly. She did a lot of volunteer work and liked to travel the world. She often went hiking, spelunking, trapezing, rock climbing, trampolining. She'd already been skydiving, so for her 30th birthday, she went bungee jumping, voluntarily leaping off a bridge into the 191-foot Columbia River Gorge in Oregon, and she uploaded the video to YouTube, calling it Learning to Fly on My 30th Birthday. 
if she had any faults, it was her self-proclaimed lack of fashion sense and her love for junk television. Jaina loved to dance, and even though she reportedly didn't have the right body for ballet, she was a natural tap dancer and performed all over the U.S. alongside Samuel Glover, who was apparently a tap dancing sensation. Realizing that she didn't want to become a professional dancer, she studied at St. Louis University in Spain for two years before obtaining a degree in business and communications at George Washington University. She then worked at an oil-filled services company for a while before enrolling at Johns Hopkins University to work towards earning two master's degree in business administration and communications. Working at Lululemon was a means to an end, since she admired what the company stood for and was using Lululemon as a case study for her business administration classes. It could be said that she'd lived life to the full, taking every opportunity that she had been given and, and that she could be an inspiration to all of us. But she isn't done leaving a mark on the world. The Bethesda branch of Lululemon remembered Jaina by hanging a photo of her in the store and installing a six-foot-long love window in her memory, where it soon became a local landmark. Jaina's parents also set up the Jaina Troxel Murray Foundation, which aims to support and promote the interests that had made Jaina the person that she was, and set up a scholarship program that gives its recipients the opportunity to study at Jaina's alma maters. Despite the fact that her life had been brutally ended when she was just 30 years old, Jaina's legacy continues to live on, and 50 years from now, I hope it's her name that people will remember, and not that of her killer. Dismembered Appendices Number 1. Judge Greenberg made a point of criticizing the Apple Store staff for not acting when they heard Jaina's cries, voicing the Murray family's outrage at, quote, the callous indifference of the people who heard this crime happen and did not do a blessed thing to stop it. Number 2. In December 2017, the Bethesda branch of Lululemon moved to new premises. The love window was removed and given to the Murray family and now hangs in Jaina's brother's house. Number 3. Every year, the Jaina Troxel Murray Foundation sells a Christmas ornament that is inspired by Jaina in one way or another. The funds that they raise are then distributed among the many programs that they support. You can find them on Facebook, and donations are always welcome. And number four, thank you to Aaron for reaching out on Twitter and recommending this case. And thank you for listening, listeners at home, viewers on YouTube. Thank you for uh, being here. If you'd like to leave the show a review, if you're uh, a podcast listener, please do. Like and subscribe on YouTube, and I'll see you next time. the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.